America. My name is I'm Yosef Frimpong. I come to you live-ish every, well, live every Friday to talk about the news of the day and do it in a way that hopefully make your life a little bit more uh, meaningful and clear. The world's very confusing, and make no mistake, there is a large... Uh, ideological project in these United States that that's tied to controlling the black mind and hopefully you can tune in every Friday and I will make it uh, you know a little bit clearer and it's tied to controlling the white mind also but uh, usually it's tied to controlling the white mind in a way that gets them to ignore the justice claims of black people because if you if you haven't noticed like we pretty much wholesale accepted uh, racial stratification is some sort of fact of nature, right? We've just kind of said somehow that like this is perfectly appropriate and like, like, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm saying actually a distribution like this is not appropriate. It's something weird that like it's a lot of black men seem to find them way into the, uh, uh, the, the criminal justice system. And it seems to be pretty much impossible to convict a white woman of anything so what's going on so like we have to ask these questions especially before we start blaming individuals uh, or like groups just saying well you know black men are criminals and there's something you know sugar and spice and everything nice about white women we're like well actually that's there might be other dynamics at play that could explain a graph like this right so uh, I come to you live every Friday to kind of clarify some of our issues and, you know, make the struggle a little bit more clear. Because if you haven't noticed, and this is, uh, this is important, and this is going to tie into the, the bigger theme of uh, today's lesson, which is going to be on critical race theory. The truth we live by is underdeveloped, right? There's this false binary between true and false. But actually what's going on is truth and then more robust truth, but it's more robust in a way that, uh, that um, uh, actually is more true than it was privacy. So when I say something like, well, you know, Mackenzie Scott's one of the richest people on, in, in the world and you don't, and you should probably know that because like she might influence your policy. You'll be like, Mackenzie Scott, I don't even know who that is. Well, she's the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, right? So when I just say Mackenzie Scott, you don't know that. You don't, you think, oh yeah, well, who's, whoever that is, I can't see her being that influential. When I, see the, when I say the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, now you think, oh, Mackenzie Scott, I have a truer conception of like what it means that some random person has like, you know, billions of dollars to give away every year in charity as a tax write-off she could either fund my opposition or fund she's not gonna fund my justice claim so learning more about the object of inquiries relationships to things that aren't the object um actually gives you a truer sense of the object right so how's this being how's it being the case um yeah, like I say McKinsey Scott, you're like, oh, no big deal. When I say McKinsey Scott, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, you're like, oh, I could see how that could be an issue, right? So we've learned more about McKinsey Scott by understanding her relationship to something that's not McKinsey Scott, which is Jeff Bezos and Jeff Bezos' money, right? 
So um, there was a way in which, like I said, uh, I mean, there, there are lots of ways this, this is going to start to become more and more relevant. But just know that as truth becomes developed, as we come to develop a richer understanding of truth, it changes what the object of inquiry is. And I'll tie this directly to critical race theory. For example, the, one of the founders of critical race theory uh, is a legal scholar by the name of Derek Bell. Derek Bell argued that, like, look, you look at Brown versus Board of Education, and you, look, you have to actually look at the context of, um, through which that decision emerged. You can't just look at, you can't just assume that people and the arguments people were giving and the concerns they had. You can't just look at what we want um, Brown versus board, the Board of Education to mean. We have to actually look at like, you know, what was going on, right? And one of the things that was going on was that we were in the middle of the Cold War. And in the middle of the Cold War, one thing that the Russians would always say to us is like, yeah, 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 but you guys lynch Negroes. Like, that was literally the, <laughs> go ahead, um, go ahead and Google that phrase, and you lynch Negroes. It, it turns out it's like a big old joke, and, and you lynch Negroes, and you lynch Negroes. Yeah, it's got its own Wikipedia, and you are lynching Negroes. It's like, it's a Russian phrase to, um, uh, to combat any sort of like moral claim that America has, right? And it's actually there, there's a Polish version of it, and you lynch Negroes. There's a uh, at the bottom of the article. Uh, there's a Czech version of and you lynch Negroes. There's a Hungarian version, but it's a joke among the entire um, uh, Western uh, Eastern. European world, post-Soviet world, that whenever America says something, you can just respond back, and you lynch Negroes. So, like, hush, right? And the problem was we were in the middle of the Cold War, and the developing world was uh, looking at the way we pretty much were a like a, a colonial state with an internal colony of black people, and it made the moral argument for American capitalism and American intervention harder to make for developing nations, to developing nations. And like, you know, you have to understand at that time, um, Russia was looking at, uh, this is a, uh, a very funny, this is uh, some Russian propaganda concerning the Americas um, and how like Americans live with respect to the fact that, like, you know, in the U.S. we lynched Negroes. Um, it's a little bit small, but you see what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, this was the propaganda. So in order to get rid of the moral argument, uh, we had to actually have a policy that was somewhat supportive of of black people in the United States. So the CIA and to some extent the FBI had an interest in, and you know, the American anti-communists had an interest in at least the formal appearance of the United States not being a, a colonial state that terrorized black people. And Derek Bell argues that that's what actually governed the, uh, oh, actually, he says, without anti-communism, there wouldn't have been a Brown versus Board of Education. Like, there, there wouldn't have been, uh, like, 
Jim Crow wouldn't have uh, gone down. The civil rights movement wouldn't have happened. So first of all, all those people who say shame doesn't work, shame absolutely works. We are scared of being ashamed in the eyes of, uh, you know, those countries we wanted to invade of, uh, you know, but we wanted to invade them nicely. We wanted to protect them from communism, right? But we had to actually not, we had to blunt the argument that the United States is uh, a bad moral actor by actually doing good, somewhat good by, uh, 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 you know, American black people, right? And so for Derek Bell, he's like, yeah, that accounts for the interest convergence, and this is, becomes a, an important theory in, in critical race theory that account the interest convergence that accounts for you know the passage of Brown versus Board of Education. So all these stories we tell about how the Warren Court was just applying the law and um, there weren't any exogenous or external concerns that they were worried about really is kind of it's not true, right? The law underdetermines its application. And we're going to talk more about that and the relationship between critical race theory and critical legal theory after the beat. To the beat, y'all. Uh, yeah. Sound good to me. Never change the ways for the world or the government. If it was the president, then I would state facts. You leave it up to me, I paint the White House black and it can feature in your front. All right, so what is critical race theory? The target of critical race theory is a quality of legal formalism. What is legal formalism? It's this idea that you can just, the content of what you're adjudicating doesn't matter if, it, if you're applying a legal form, right? The content is irrelevant, right? That's going to be a problem. And critical theory, you can have critical boxing theory. What's critical boxing theory going to look like? Well, it's going to say that, well, if you want to find who, if you want to evaluate boxer's skills, you can uh, just have them fight each other in a boxing match. And that one, then you'll know who the better boxer is. And then the critical boxer theorist will be like, well, actually, this person's 115 pounds and this person's 255 pounds. So what will be decided in that fight isn't going to be the boxer's skill, it's going to be overdetermined by their weight differential, right? So the critical boxing theory will be like, if we actually care about seeing, like testing boxing skill, we can't have it be overdetermined by weight differentials, we need to have weight classes, we need to talk about um, treating, we have to actually look at the content of the fighters. We can't just apply the method, because what the method will do, if we just apply it to everyone, it will just, uh, it'll give, give us a distorted reality about the truth about the fighter's skill, right? Because it'll be determined by this external um, source of inequality, inequality. So you can say the fight will be equal insofar as they're both fighters and they're both boxers and they will be um, boxing. But the fight, but it'll be a quality of it'll be a quality of equality that masks standing orders of inequality, right? So there's a way in which you can talk about equality under the law that actually masks really and actually calcifies, not only masks, but calcifies orders of inequality. And this is one reason why, uh, you know, developing states like uh, oligarchs in developing states like constitutional 
regimes because constitutional regimes protect property rights. And that means everyone could be equal under the law. But if I own, I have like property rights, but if I have like a disproportionate amount of property, that means I could kind of rule over the people who don't have any access to any property. So there's a way in which equality under the law, insofar as they'll just support property rights, actually calcifies injustice if the actual arrangement of, of like, like, if there's a huge discrepancy in like the amount of property people have access to own. Right, there's another example of, of, of this. I mean, there's a famous quote by Anatoly France who pretty much says, you know, the law and its majestic equality uh, bars everyone, the rich and the poor of life, from begging on the streets, from sleeping under bridges, and from stealing. So there's a way in which that kind of equality ranges over the poor and the rich alike, but it does so in a way that actually disproportionately uh, makes limits the opportunities of the poor and um, strengthens the power relationship that and the power of the wealthy over the poor because now the poor can't find other ways to sleep they have to go to the wealthy person and and kind of negotiate on the wealthy person's um terms and this the wealthy person now has the state saying that you have to rent for me you can't the person with a surplus house you can't sleep under a bridge you have to rent for me or i'll call the cops right so there's a way in which equality under the law knows the options of the poor person, you know, the inability to, to sleep under a bridge, it becomes illegal now, while also calcifying uh, the ability of the wealthy person to turn the poor person into a tool of the wealthy person's interests. Right? So formal equality isn't really, is, is, um, can be an institution of injustice, right? So one of the targets of critical race theory is formal equality. Another way formal equality is an institution of injustice is that the facts underdetermine their application, right? So this is, a, this is something that you see in all, all minors of critical theory. When I'm hit with an event or a fact, I'm hit with all of it, right? And in order to determine what I'm like someone's innocence or guilt, I have to pick and choose among the welter of facts, the manifold presentation of facts, and decide which one's relevant and which one's not, right? Because legally, I could use this fact to make this determination, or I could use this fact to make that determination. I have to decide, no, this one's more important than that. And that's not itself a legal, that's not, that's not just merely applying a law to an instance. It's making a judgment about which one of these facts is the relevant one um, for my case, right? And depending on that judgment, you can ground, you can ground different verdicts, right? So it's going to be about the discretion of the judge, about like, what the judge thinks is important. Uh, because we have the law underdetermines its application, and many of the facts that are presented to you can be can justify different determinations. This is why actually the 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 judge matters, because different judges looking at the same case, both applying the law, can come to different reasonable um, uh, uh, um, uh, verdicts. 
different legal verdicts, right? That, that not necessarily will be overturned because they're both application of the law. You can say, well, precedent changes that. Actually, precedent doesn't really change that either because no two cases are exactly alike. So even choosing which precedent um, uh, is the applicable precedent for this situation is going to be a matter of including some aspects of this situation and of that precedent and <laughs> including some aspects and excluding other aspects of this situation and that precedent. Right? So precedents also underdetermine their application. So we've decided that whatever judges do, it's not necessarily uh, it's not necessarily a matter of merely applying the law to an instance. There are going to be other concerns because the law doesn't apply itself. There's not only going to be other concerns, there are going to be there are going to be other things going on because I have to decide what is the relevant aspect of this case before me. And that's not something the law is going to tell you necessarily. Right? And um and with and, and not like not necessarily exclude multiple possible determinations that could emerge legally. Right? So how does race figure into this? Well we can't be formalists about race and ignore the fact of different cultural and material inheritances, right? The idea that you could have a law that you can, the idea that you can have a law that extends over all of the races in America, um, that is not sensitive to the degraded conditions and exalted conditions of some of the races in America, but that law is somehow equal, is, is, a, is, is, is just not, it's not real. It's an abstract, you've abstracted away the real circumstance of the people in the same way that the person who says, well, I wanna find out the best fighter, uh, boxer, so I'll just let the boxers box, and without actually paying attention to the weight differential of the 113 pound boxer and the 215 pound boxer, that, like, that person's not really serious about getting to a real answer. Like a real answer is gonna be sensitive to all of the relationships, uh, not just the abstract similarity that they're both boxers, but it's going to be sensitive to all of the relationships, including the relationship uh, that 115 pounds has to, you know, physics relative to 155 pounds, right? And the power that can be generated in a punch. Um, so critical race theory is going to, the target of critical race theory is going to be this kind of formalism that abstracts from the content of the participants involved and the actual relationships of the participants involved. Right? Um, I mean, yeah, so I, I, I hope that's that's clear and you have to understand that people are going to fight against that because and by the way two books on this that are really good are the Derek Bell reader Derek Bell is a fantastic critical race theorist and this one's not bad either critical race and introduction uh critical race theory and introduction and um why people are going to fight against it because you have to understand that there's a way in which we've made whiteness a property We've made whiteness a property. And for, so if you don't have any other property, you still have property in your whiteness. And if critical, what critical race theory might do, it might devalue the, 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 the asset value of your whiteness. 
which means it's it's they are people are worried about their property values, right? And one of the properties they have is their whiteness, and they don't want that whiteness devalued, even if it means like you know the truth and justice. And so what we have is a kind of an underdeveloped conception of history. For example, the 1619 project. 1619 project says like, look, you look at the revolutionary, you look at you look at the actual context of the revolutionary moment. Sure, you had people worried about self-governance and all of that stuff, but you had a lot of Southerners worried about their property rights. And what you had, I mean, explicitly worried about their property rights. And the crown in London's ability to just raise taxes or haul people off or confiscate property. So they, and mind you, the colonists, when they think about property, they're thinking about us. They were thinking about black people. And so um, in London at the time, in 1772, they had just uh, had uh, the, the Somerset verdict. Now, the Somerset verdict, what it did was abolished slavery in, in you know, in London proper, right? It abolished slavery in, in England proper. Not in the colonies, but in England. And they kind of looked at what was going on in, in London, and they were thinking, well, you know, if they abolished slavery unilaterally over there, if we are under their legal system, they have the authority to abolish slavery in all the colonies, which would instantly jeopardize, and without asking us, would instantly jeopardize all of my property holdings. And if you know anything about white people, you know that they like their property holdings. So the Somerset um, verdict in 1772 was actually very threatening. And it's not an, it's not an, it's not an accident that all of these you know, slave-owning Virginians were very interested in governance. They were interested in governance for different reasons than the, uh, um, you know, the guys in Massachusetts. Not necessarily nicer, but you have to understand that the South was just a bunch of fiefdoms. Uh, um, Slaveholding like little fiefdoms, and they didn't care about town hall meetings and like robust governance. No, they wanted their property. They wanted their property and their Negroes secured, and not what they didn't want is their property and their Negroes jeopardized by some British judge who decided that the colonies aren't going to have slaves either because it was un-English. It was, it was, we are English people, we do not have slaves. And, and that would be fine, but Americans wanted their slaves. White Americans wanted their slaves, right? So he's not saying that the 1619 Project wasn't arguing that like that was the determinative reason necessarily, but that factored in, in the same way that anti-communism factored into uh, Brown versus Board of Education. We wanted to look good in Brown versus Board of Education. We wanted to look good uh, to the third world so that we couldn't, uh, so that we could blunt ourselves from the argument that the USSR was launching um, at us. That like you know, don't listen to the United States. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. They lynched their Negroes. So like th that also factored in to the civil rights movement. Was it alone? Did that was that alone? Was could the Cold War alone account for the civil rights movement and, and the relative successes? but ultimate failures of the movement? Well, depending on who you talk to, yes. But was it a contributing factor? Absolutely. Anti-communism was absolutely a contributing factor to the public and the elite need to, to at least appear to not be a terrorist state. And property security was absolutely a contributing factor to the, colonials, the colonialists 
the colonists need to emancipate themselves from the crown. Right? They wanted their property secure. And make no mistake, when they say property, they mean us. Reread the Declaration of Independence. When they're talking about taxes and property and controlling uh, their rights, they're talking about they're controlling their rights to control us. And those were the rights in jeopardy. Um, those were the rights in jeopardy. So, critical race theory takes, uh, takes its major target as a quality of formalism that abstracts from the actual content and the actual function of, of and I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about that, of what's of the object of inquiry, right? And uncritical race theory will just kind of ignore the relationships. It'll say you can. It'll tell you something about. It'll say you can know about Mackenzie Scott without knowing that she is Jeff Bezos's. Just by meeting her and talking with her, and the fact that she's Jeff Bezos's ex-wife doesn't confer any knowledge or any more robust account of truth of who she is. Yeah, actually, it does. It does. Having a conversation with Mackenzie Scott is one thing. Having a conversation and access to a conversation with Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, the, the multi-billionaire, that's a different kind of thing. She doesn't stop becoming Mackenzie Scott, but she becomes more. I have a richer conception of the truth of what I'm dealing with now. Right? So if you learn about anti-communism and, and, and Brown versus Board of Education, you have a richer conception of what was going on, and especially if you want to repeat uh, re repeat the, like that kind of racial progress you have a richer conception of what actually was the context that allowed that sort of racial um, um, progress to happen if you want to have a richer conception of the uh, the American Revolution you should know that 1772 you know the Somerset um, the Somerset uh, verdict actually like was on people's minds it was in 1772. It was on people's minds about like uh, slavery is kind of going on the way out. It's becoming déclassé. It's already officially banned in you know England proper. It might come to the colonists. And if all of your money is in Negroes, if all of your livelihood and like your aspirations for your kid is to be rulers of slaves, and make no mistake, you know that was a lot of people's aspiration in these United States to be rulers of slaves. It's funny because women couldn't hold property except their slaves. They didn't have to see the they, they, women could hold that like you could bequeath slaves to your daughter and they would always be your daughters, not your daughter's husbands. So like <laughs> it was a big deal. Also, the Dunmore pro uh, Proclamation, that was the kind of the, the, the governor slash general, the English general, the guy named Dunmore of uh, the Virginia Territory. Yeah, the Virginia Territory said like, look, if you fight for us, English people against the colonists who want to abscond away from the crown will free you. Right. So like, like the English people were offering emancipation. Um, and so that absolutely, the, like the control of black people, and you know, a lot of black people took them up on that, that offer. So the Dunmore proclamation and the concern about the, like, the Somerset uh, verdict destabilizing uh, you know, colonial property relationships and property relationships meaning us and property interests, those absolutely had a contributing factor to the American Revolution. Like, I don't... Like, but if you just look at a formal 
uh, account of it. And, you know, you don't look at the relationships that the founding fathers had to actual, like, black people. Um, and you just think, well, they just wanted to govern themselves. Let's not talk about their relationships to their slaves. Then you'll miss the, uh, you'll miss, you'll miss what's at issue, right? So what you get in uncritical race theory is uh, a very underdeveloped and dangerously underdeveloped and viciously underdeveloped account of how race actually functions in America. And, you know, we talk about America being an unfinished product, but we don't talk about how unfinished products or underdeveloped accounts of history and underdeveloped accounts of truth are actually dangerous. You have to think of America as an unfinished product in a way that like a construction site is an unfinished project. A construction site is an unfinished project, but it's also very dangerous for people who don't have access to hard hats and like, <laughs> like it's unfinished in a way that's dangerous. Or you can think of, uh, there are like lychee fruits and acai berries. There are some berries that if they're underripe, they're actually dangerous. They're still those kinds of berries, but they're underripe. And they're dangerous, right? So that's the kind of truth that we're telling people. It's underdeveloped. A quality of underdeveloped truth because it doesn't tease out the relationships um, and the interests that are, that, are, that are at play. And that kind of underdeveloped truth actually mis like completely distorts uh, everyone's conception of reality. I mean, we have, a, we have a conversation about wealth in the United States that just talks about wealth that people make from earning and money they happen to have, not the wealth they get from marrying, not the wealth they get from inheritance. There are lots of ways uh, like that wealth moves, and only one of them is through a job, right? And, but if we only, if we narrow the conversation to just movement through a job, you'll, get a, you'll, you'll have a true account of, 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 of wealth distribution in the United States, but it will be fundamentally underdetermined in such a way that it'll be distortive. You won't, you'll be confused about how someone who makes as much as you at the job can afford a house that is much more than you make, right? Um, but because you're not thinking about, well, you know, their spouse's grandparent died and that left them an inheritance that they made a, a down payment that, that now, they, they can, now they have rental properties and you're like, but we work the same jobs. Well, the idea that you're just the same because you work the same job masks all of the ways in which you're not the same because the person you're working the same job with has a spouse whose grandfather made a ton of money and, you know, one wealthy white grandfather dying can like secure an entire clan because uh, that's the kind of money they're rolling in relative to everybody else. All right, so um, so we can, and then some people say like, well, you know, race was just a social, a social construct. Yeah, but some are like traffic lights. Traffic lights are a social construct, but just ignore them. See how it works. Well, if you ignore traffic lights, the social, just a social artifact, you ignore traffic lights, what'll happen is um, you'll end up with a lot of traffic tickets. You'll be in a fiery crash. Like, just because it's, it's a social uh, construct doesn't mean that it's not objectively, like, powerful, right? And so a quality of legal formalism will be like, well, we outlawed 
um, real estate agents from being racist. But we didn't change any of the incentive structures for real estate. We didn't actually change any of the content of the job. So we, we can outlaw real estate agents from being racist, but that's not gonna do anything for neighborhood segregation because the real estate agent makes their money off a of commission and commission's going to come from being the kind of real estate agent who understands the, uh, the customer's racism without actually having to make the customer or the client be explicit about their race racism, right? <laughs> that's how you get to be a real estate agent who's a good fit. You, are the, you have to understand your client's racism without being explicit in, in your client's racism. So you could formally outlaw it, but since you haven't changed any of the incentive structures, the real estate agent still has an interest in, you know, uh, racializing the houses that they show to, um, you know, prospective clients, especially prospective white clients. Because like I said before, white people have a, their property isn't just like the stuff they own, it's also their whiteness, right? And that, that was the deal that elite whiteness, um, elite whites who actually had more property gave to poor whites who didn't have propertyless whites, they gave them the property in their whiteness. But in order for that property in the whiteness to have value, it's gotta be valued relative to the degradation of blackness. Right? So no matter what, you can rule over Negroes. That was the, uh, that was the, the deal um, that elite whites gave to, uh, to, poor, uh, to propertyless whites. And propertyless whites take it because it's not that bad to rule over Negroes. It's pretty good. You get to rule over someone. I get to have some sort of power. And they're not going to jeopardize that property or have that property be devalued. They got the property they have in their whiteness. Or have that property be devalued because, you know, we're Americans. We like that uh, property. And it serves as an insurance policy for elite whites, right? Let's say elite whites lose everything. They won't lose their whiteness. So they still have something relative to black people, which means they could still use black people as tools for their white aspirations. So if you try to actually understand legal verdicts or <coughs> colorblind policies without actually seeing how all of these other social and political institutions have an interest in this particular verdict, right? The CIA has an interest in um, the Brown versus Board of Education, right? The, the Virginia planters have an interest in the stable institution of slavery, right? And if you just ignore all of those interests that all of these non-legal institutions have in legal proceedings, then you, you have a misunderstanding of, of what, of, you know, how legal proceedings are determined, right? Or how anything is determined, right? So you have, if you don't understand the interest in, the Virginia planter's interest in having secured property rights relative to the Crown's tendency at this time to abolish slavery, then you, you misunderstand like the, the, the impetus for the American Revolution. If you don't know about anti-communism, you misunderstand and misapprehend the Brown versus Board of Education. So um, critical race theory, once again, like I said, take anything out of this last half hour, take the critical race theory's target is a quality of formalism 
that abstracts from the content of like what of real powerful relationships and, and like real effective relationships and real meaningful relationships and judges based on categories that are abstracted from the uh, the, the the fact of power, right? It would be the equivalent of, and I said this at the beginning. It would be the equivalent of saying, "I want to figure out who's the best boxer. I'll just put these people in," while abstracting out the fact that one of them weighs 115 pounds and the other one weighs 250 pounds, and you just put them into fight. And you're thinking, "Well, whoever wins is because they, you know, worked hard." I'm like, no, that's not actually what's doing the work. The weight differential is contributing to the outcome of that fight. Um, right. And so you'll have a lot of white people who actually like the unjust uh, distribution of, of, of resources, and they like the stories they tell themselves about the unjust use, uh, distribution of resources. And a lot of white parents are going to be upset um, about, because it, it, it jeopardizes their legacy. White kids actually aren't that bad. I mean, the, you know, whatever. But they actually, like, it's not, they don't actually feel bad learning about the legacy of whiteness. It's the parents. Whereas for the uncritical race theory, the kids, when they have this underdeveloped understanding of the truth, they blame themselves, right? So black kids blame themselves for everyone, for like, for being degraded. Um, and so you need critical race theory if you actually want to dignify black kids. But that will, it might end up shaming the stories. Of, it makes it harder for white parents to tell themselves the stories uh, that white parents like to tell their kids in order to keep the grift going and sustainable through the generations. And you have to understand a few things about white supremacy. One, it's a system, it's a system of differentiated institutions, differentiated mutually reinforcing institutions. And white supremacy as a system of differentiated, mutually reinforcing institution means that if you just take out one of those white supremacy institutions, the others will cover for it. And if you're a threat to any of the institutions, the others will feel that threat in a specific way. So critical race theory will threaten white parents who primarily identify themselves as parents. It'll threaten the white family. Well, the white family is part of a functional, is, is part of a, an institution of white supremacy. And so, and so anything that takes out white supremacy is going to feel like a threat, a specific threat to the white family. It's going to threaten the white church. Well, you know, the white church has a lot to, the white church is a bit of mess. They have a lot to atone for. Um, I mean, you know, I, I'm looking for the, the picture I sometimes use of, you know, the Klan meeting that, you know, a lot of Klan meetings happened in churches just because they were community spaces. But, uh, you know, the, like, there was like a Klan meeting during a service where everyone brought their robes to, you know, there's like Stewardship Sunday and then like Klan Sunday, where everyone brought their robes to, uh, to, 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 to church one day. And uh, there's a great picture of that. Right. So it's going to destabilize that. It's going to destabilize the stories people tell themselves about all of their institutions, insofar as all of their institutions, their jobs, the stories they tell themselves about their jobs, the stories they tell themselves about their school and their education and their grades. It'll, tell, it'll destabilize all the stories white people tell themselves about the merit of themselves relative to other people. And it'll, it'll be felt in a very specific way. Critical race theory will somehow seem like unchristian because 
but it'll only seem unchristian if your Christianity is really about white supremacy. Right? Critical race theory is going to seem unfamily, but it'll only be, unfam uh, be a, a threat to your family if your family is really just an institution of white supremacy or is substantively an institution of white supremacy. It'll seem anti-academic if like, your understanding of academics is uh, you know, racist. Right, so I like, or you think the purpose of school is to make, you know, white people feel, white parents feel good about the stories they have to tell their kids. That's not the purpose of schools. The purpose of schools is to kind of learn truth and raise responsible citizens who can do justice by each other in this project of, you know, shared governance in the United States. So I hope now you can talk about critical race theory. Um, you can buy, get either of these two books. In this book, uh, there's a great essay on racial realism, which means you can't talk about race in the abstract. You have to talk about race as how it actually functions and how it actually functions um, and, and actual social dynamics. You can't talk about like, well, we're colorblind now. It's equality under the law. A justice that's blind is a justice that's markedly unjust. I need justice that sees. I need justice. Good. Yeah, that's that's great. I need justice that sees, because the justice that's blind is is uh, is overly abstract. That it's not going to see like with any sort of perspicacity the situation that black people are in. All right. Thank you for your time. And don't abstract from the content of actual power relations. Also, people who say that violence never works and shame never works, those people are are silly because they've abstracted from all. They've strategically picked all of the ways in which violence has worked and shame has worked. It doesn't work all the time in all the ways, but yeah, it, it often contributes to working, especially in terms of racial justice, because you know, white people don't give too much up for free. So thank you. If you appreciate anything I do, which I think you should, um, go ahead and go over to www.funkyacademic.com and kick in five, fifteen, or fifty dollars a month. Because uh, you know, I, I did put in some reading, and uh, I want to keep doing good shows that will increase the quality of your political discourse. And uh, thank you for your time. And I will talk to you next week.